Well, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Um, let's pray. It's nine o'clock. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your day and uh, for the mercies that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We are your creatures, Lord. Uh, we uh, belong to you and you have called us to be your people. And we are so thankful to you. Uh, but we are needy creatures as well. We need you every single moment of our lives, every single second. And uh, we need you when uh, we study about you, when we try to comprehend what you have revealed to us. So we pray that you may help us this morning, uh, grant us of your Holy Spirit, uh, and help us to um, open our ears and uh, hearts so we can see what uh, you have done uh, with your church, and we may glorify you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so this morning we are on our third part uh, regarding the modes of the church. Uh, remember this mode word is simply another way of saying the existence of the church, the manifestation of the church here on earth. Um, so don't is not to be confused with the attributes of the church, right? The attributes of the church is what the church is whether in its uh, glory or on earth. Uh, those four things, five things, are true of the church. One, holy, catholic, apostolic, and indestructible. Those five things are true of the church in glory and on earth. But when we talk about the modes of the church, then we're talking about the existence of the church here on earth as, as people gather together. Right, and and we uh, display certain organizations, certain things that have to do with uh, the church uh, that we can see. Uh, uh, and uh, with that, um, I've been thinking about a local and universal church that kind of was confusing last week, or wasn't well explained at least in my head. And uh, I I've been thinking about it, and I think the best way I came out with an example, and I think it's the best way I maybe will be able to explain it is think about your family, right? Um, the Rosses, the Pikes, the Garcias. Uh, if they were Christians, but they have gone to be with the Lord, where are they? They are with the Lord. They have not stopped being your family, but you cannot see them anymore. But as for me, the Garcias, we have my wife, my kids, my in-laws are with me here. But my rest of uh, the rest of our families is where in Ecuador, right down south. So they haven't stopped being family; they are just in a different place. In the same way with the church, as it is manifested here on earth, uh, uh, you have local churches here in Montrose, and you have churches who are gathering in different places of the earth. And that different places of the earth is what we consider the existence of the church as a universal church, as it is manifested in the whole of the globe. I hope that helps, uh, but do not confuse the attributes with the modes. That's, that's all that I wanted to, see, to say this morning. Now, uh, we are about to embark in the third part of this, and it has to do with the church as an institution and the church as an organism. And I think we may spend one more, at least, uh, one more class on this distinction. Um, so hang in there, uh, because this, this, if we mistake this one, 
then uh, we are prone to certain errors that are common in, in other churches. Um, the division between institution and an an organism, although it's very popular today in many other circles, uh, it was not so in uh, outside of Reformed churches, Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Not even some Presbyterian churches have it. So it's a very recent development. And uh, it has to do with um, how the church engages with different things. And we are going to see that. You look confused, don't worry. I hope I will, I will remove that confusion from, from you. Um, so the first thing to do is to give a working concept of these two modes of the church. Second, we will explore the church as an institution by following the biblical data and seeing how scriptures gives us the basic blueprint for the manifestation of the church on earth. So I have two working concepts in your um, main, uh, in the body of the, of the sheet that you have. Um, the church as an institution is the organized church with gathered people, pastor, elders, deacons, presbyteries, general assembly, confessional standards, book of church order, um, uh, and in some countries, institutional registry before the government. Uh, I don't know, was that true in Ukraine? You had to, whenever you open a mission church, you had to register in, uh, before the government? Yeah, that's how it is in, in uh, Colombia and Ecuador. If you are going to open a new uh, mission church or whatever, then you need to register the mission church before the government. Um, because uh, the government of Ecuador sees the church as an institution that serves for the good of the people. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they want to avoid abuses and, and uh, um, other things like mass suicide or, or things like that. And so they want to know who is in charge, uh, what do you believe, what are you doing, and so on. So you need to register the church before the government. Um, it is manifested especially on the Lord's Day, as today, as we gather to worship and activities related that surround uh, discipling and caring for God's people. So uh, whenever we gather together to um, have the Bible study on Wednesdays or when pastor and elders go to visit you at your house, that's a manifestation of the institutional church. We are coming in the name of Jesus Christ to visit you. To uh, This is an official visitation. Uh, think about... This is a bad example, but think about IRS knocking at your door. <laughs> they are coming to you in the name of the IRS. We are coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ. We represent his church when we come to visit you. Okay? Uh, when, uh, whenever we do any activity related with the church as we are gathered, that's a manifestation of the institutional church. It's TRPC coming together. Now, the church as an organism is the church that's, that exists as a living body outside of official activities like worship services. This church uh, is the church that during the week is busy working, nurturing families, and doing all kinds of normal activities as they exist in the world. In other words, when you step out of the building, um, you don't go and say, well, church is over. Now it's time to behave like a pagan, right? No. You continue living the Christian life, right? You hope uh, that the Holy Spirit will move you and continue uh, walking according to 
uh, God's law and according to scriptures, right? Um, um, uh, if, if you are married, you don't step out of the church and you go, well, it's time to, uh, uh, to care for my other family as well. And uh, my wife should be okay with that because this is the world and this is how affairs are right now. It's okay to have more than one family, more than one wife. Uh, you know, think about Utah, uh, 1800s. Um, you know, it's okay to have more than one wife and she, she should be okay because the Bible doesn't have anything to say uh, right now. No, the Bible informs everything, how you work, what you think, how you move in, the, in this world. Um, so that's the church as an organism. You are not necessarily working as a Christ, uh, uh, with other Christians. Sometimes that happens, but not necessarily you are all the time engaging with Christians. Uh, most of the times you are engaging with people who are not Christians, and unless you are working in the school here, and then you are working with Christians. But even there, the expectation is you are going to behave like a Christian, because you are a Christian. If you are in, in the public school, uh, teaching or whatever, you are going to behave like a Christian even then, right? Uh, you don't stop being part of the church. You don't stop being a Christian. Even that, even, even then, your behavior changes because you want to bring honor and glory to God, all right? Um, so that is more or less what these two are, these two concepts. Uh, you don't stop being a Christian when you are outside of the building. You live in a certain way that brings glory to God. When you are in your working place, the Holy Spirit is with you. And God's kingdom is there being represented by you because you are an ambassador of God's kingdom. Um, uh, and pastor doesn't have to be there, right? Telling you what to do or how to behave or, you know, um, things like that. Because um, it's your place. It's where, where God has located you. And you don't have you don't have me there. So what do you have with you? You have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God with you, who is moving you in certain ways to uh, live in in a different way. So um, I hope is that clear. Do you have any questions? Yeah. Now, logically speaking, uh, and depending depending how we see it. Uh, if we see it from the perspective of God, who is the one who creates the church, and he is the one who organizes the church, then the church as an institution comes first. Jesus Christ comes down to earth, and he is the king of the church, and then he establishes 12 uh, apostles, disciples. And those 12 are uh, the pastors, the first pastors of the institutional church. So the institutional church, from that pers perspective, has always existed. If you want to see it from the other side, from the side of uh, uh, the human perspective, then the church as an organism comes first, because Jesus Christ comes to earth, and the first thing he does is create this body of people who are following him, who are springing out of Israel, and then uh, becoming this new community, and then as we walk through the New Testament, we see the disciples becoming apostles and the, the apostles ordaining more elders and more pastors and more deacons to serve in the different churches. But the body was there before. So in that sense, uh, the organic church was first. Whatever you, however you see it, the point is, uh, is these two never exist uh, by themselves. 
In other words, you cannot have uh, the church as an organism and do not have the church as an institution. Think about uh, house churches. Uh, it became popular here in America uh, several years ago to, oh, we want to do things as in the New Testament, how the people used to do it. So what is, what is it that we are going to do? Uh, we are going to gather people, right, in a house, and then anyone uh, can uh, um, anyone can speak. We don't need pastors. We don't need elders. We don't need deacons. It's just like the old, like the New Testament church uh, in a house. You know, a few people gathered, and then see what the Lord does. And then uh, you know, as more people comes, then uh, everyone can speak and so forth, and so on and so forth. And then uh, when we are big enough, we will rent a facility. And then maybe maybe we will define who can speak and who cannot speak. That is not how the New Testament church worked. Uh, because remember, from the beginning, they have Jesus Christ. He's God himself speaking to them. And he is the king of the church. So there was not a time in which the church didn't have a king, a, a, a pastor, so to speak, um, a, a shepherd to guide them. Then after Jesus is gone, it's not that the disciples are like, oh, no, what are we going to do now? We don't know. Jesus never told us. No, they are specifically, purposefully waiting in a place because Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out over them, and then they will know what to do. And what do we see in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit is poured out over them, and then they exactly know what to do. And... Um, and then they already had an organization. The 12 apostles were the ones who were in charge of the church. And as the church grew and it became evident that, that the apostles can do, cannot do everything, what did they do? They ordained deacons. So we're going to see all of that. Um, all, uh, I'm just saying that because uh, it's a lie that the church never had an organization, uh, that it was first uh, living and then came doctrine and killed everything. That is not true. And that is very well alive in some evangelical circles. That is not true. It's an invention of the 18th century. Uh, the Germans made that up. It's not true. Anyhow, uh, do you have any questions so far? We have a lot, and we may not even go through the whole sheet. So hang in there. Do you have any other questions? No, there is not questions. Do you have any questions, I should say? No? Okay. So, um, just like in previous cases, the raw material for this distinction is found in the scriptures. But it was necessity that prompted the development of this distinction, that of the institution and organism. Although this distinction already exists in Calvin and other reformers like Alasco, in seed form, we owe the full development of the distinction, especially the organic part of it, to the Dutch neo-Calvinist theologians of the early 20th century. Um, so if you read uh, John Calvin's Institutes, um, um, book four and then chapter one, chapter two of book four uh, in the second book is uh, about um, the institutional church. He starts speaking uh, about the abuses of the Pope. Then he, he talks about the true church, how it is organized, uh, how many officers do we uh, uh, do we see in the New Testament? And he speaks about uh, extraordinary officers, 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then he talks about the ordinary offices, officers, uh, pastors, uh, elders, um, deacons, and then he adds another one, teachers, doctors of the church, in order to teach the new pastors, who are to be pastors as well. Um, so the church as an institution is already there in Calvin. But here is the different thing that starts to happen in the 19th and 20, uh, 20th century. As the national churches, uh, think about England, the Anglican Church. Um, if you are born in England, you are an, a good Anglican English guy, right? Um, well, as those national churches, especially in the Netherlands, as they start um, getting more and more and more liberal, then the question is starting to pop up in their minds of people. Should we stay uh, or should we depart from the national church? That was a novel idea. It didn't happen before. It wasn't like uh, people, people said, well, you know what? Yeah, the national church getting liberal. We will go to the free churches over there. They are reformed. They believe the, they believe the confessions. We are going there. There was no free reformed churches. There was no other place to go. Uh, it was that or nothing. And so a new idea starts to, to, uh, to uh, uh, disseminate. Let's create um, a free church. A church that can not depend on the state uh, because what was happening is if you wanted to call a pastor um, what the national church did is okay do you want to call a pastor has to come from these seminaries that the state has approved and those were getting more and more liberal uh, Leiden was certainly lost uh, and many of them were coming from Leiden so okay you need to call one of these uh, from one of these seminaries and then as you're considering whom are you going to call, you need to send us the profile so the state can approve it. Um, and if, let's say, the congregation was undecided about who pastor to call, then the state would come and say, boom, this is your pastor. Um, but we didn't have a saying on it. We don't care. In fact, we didn't have a saying on it. It wasn't even in their heads. It was like, oh, this is how it is. Uh, state send the pastor, and let's see what happens, right? So what is starting to happen is that you have people who grew up learning the catechism, teaching it to their kids, uh, rem uh, reading Calvin's Institutes and their Bibles, and they knew, especially in the small towns, they really knew their stuff. They, they knew what they believed. But the pastor was preaching anything else on Sundays. So... You had a bad pastor and people who really know their truth. And in, in, and in that context, you have a young Abraham Kuyper, who is a very liberal guy, um, not believing in the scriptures or anything, who comes to a church to be the new pastor. I think he's like 22, and he's the pastor of the church. And um, he's really upset. Because after preaching, he's like me going to the door and greeting people. And there is one couple who won't shake his hand. And he's like, why don't you want to shake my hand? 
She goes, because you don't believe the gospel, period. And he goes like, okay, you know, this is just ignorant people who don't know what I know. After all, I've been in Leiden and in the best universities. So they don't know this. He starts doing what, what we have done here, visiting uh, the peoples in their houses and has to go to this house. And, uh, and he goes, okay, tell me what is going on. And she says, this is what is going on. You don't believe her confession. It's like, oh, you don't. Are you serious? You believe those obtruse, old, um, wasted away um, things from the faith? Of course I do. And it upset me that you don't. So he promises that he's going to read Calvin and that he's going to read um, the Heidelberg. Well, in like two years or so, he becomes a Christian for the first time. And uh, then he starts fighting for this little people who is very godly and very uh, pious, and yet they are having to be stuck in the national church. Uh, that's one of the things that is happening, that is starting to create this idea, mm, maybe we need to organize ourselves and, and uh, create our own church, one that is faithful to uh, our confession. But how do we do that? If, uh, if the state is forcing us to go to church uh, and is monitored, uh, the assistance, the attendance to the church is monitored uh, very, very closely. So if you are not at church today, next week you will have the police in your house. Yeah, that's how it was. Um, and then um, how do we do that, right? If the state is not giving us the right to do that. Uh, then there is another thing happening too, and that is higher criticism. The Bible is not true. And uh, uh, modern historical science that is challenging the scriptures. They are saying nothing of what the scripture says is true. It's just fake. Um, it's good moral stories, but it's not, it's not true. Nothing of what the Bible says is true. So Jericho never happened. Uh, the Jordan crossing never happened. And they start saying these kind of things that now we, we're kind of past that almost. Um, um, so you have all of these things. And then over that, you have then two questions, two very important questions. The first one is, how do people become members of the church? Um, because remember, you have a national church. Uh, if you are born in that state, then you are automatically member of the church. Uh, is that how it happens? Or, or how is it that, that this happens? And then you have another thing happening too. As you can tell, it, there is a lot of things happening at the same time. Individualism. Um, people are starting to think less about, I am, I don't know, uh, I don't know, give me a Dutch name. Um, no, I'm going to say Dave, just because... <laughs> just because Dave is Dutch. Uh, I'm, I'm Dave, son of my father, um, I don't know, I don't know, Ari, and um, we belong to this family. We are Van der Molens from the, from the mills, and we've been here for 500 years. Well, that starts to disappear. Now Dave, who was supposed to work in the farm with his father, wants to go to Amsterdam, and he wants to do something else. He wants to become a lawyer. That's unheard of. That you have value by yourself 
outside of your family, that's unheard of. That starts to change things. And so um, that affects how, how they see the church as well. Think about how we think of, about the church today. It's not something that we have the moral obligation to belong to because the Bible commands us to, right? I want to join to this church because they believe the truth and, and I, I belong there. Uh, even then, it's, I said it from a voluntaristic, individualistic perspective. Back then, you didn't have an option. You belonged to the Reformed Church, period. Uh, this starts to change things. They start thinking, do I really want to belong to church? Do I really want to be a member here? Isn't this a voluntaristic uh, association that I decide to form part of or not? Well, that starts happening too. So how do you couple with those, those ideas? Just because I'm, an, an, I'm a Dutch guy doesn't mean that I belong to the Reformed Church. I don't want to. I want to belong to the free churches. Um, that's, that's what is happening. Uh, uh, enlightenment to um, destroy the idea of the church in many, in many people. And we are affected by enlightenment more than what we think. Uh, we are disconnected from everything else. So we assume that a voluntary um, membership in the church is the normal. That was, that was not the normal thing. That was sects uh, and, and uh, cults. They used to do that, not the church. And over that, I know there's a lot of things, the afshkiding happens. And the afshkiding is the succession. Some uh, uh, people in the church go, you know what? You, pastor, are a non-believer. I don't like you, uh, so we are going to leave. And uh, other pastors were like, you know what? You, church, and you guys, um, the ones who... <laughs> it's really funny. So um, Da Costa stands in the pulpit one day, and he goes, if you believe the gospel, and if you uh, want to fight for the truth, follow me. And the rest of you, you can stay. And he does. He walks away uh, with an uh, sculpting. Him and, and Da Costa walk away with, um, I think, 2,000 people. And they form uh, the succession church, the, the Afskiding church. And some of them come to America because in America there is freedom to exercise your religion without being persecuted. Da Costa was in jail because he did that. And he couldn't uh, unite himself with the um, immigrants later until later on. So all of that is happening. So the big question is, how do we understand the church now that we are separating ourselves from the state? That is a big, big question. A question that didn't exist by the times of Calvin, because Calvin is working closely with the state. Uh, in fact, um, he is criticized today because of that. Do you remember what happened with Servidas, right? He is uh, he's a heretic. He's an anti-Trinitarian. He comes to Geneva, even though Calvin told him, don't come to Geneva. And he uh, thinks that coming to Geneva, he's going to change things. And, uh, well, someone find him out. They, they uh, denounce him to the authorities, to the consistory of Geneva. Uh, and the, the Genevans decided to put him to jail. Calvin goes, okay, um, I know you need to kill him, um, but be more, be merciful. Don't burn him. 
let's just decapitate him. That's faster, and you know, we we will be more merciful with him. The Genevans go, no, we know what the sentence for this is. If he were in Spain, he will be burned. If he were in any other place, he will be burned. We're we are going to burn him too. Um, so Calvin pleaded with him to repent. He didn't, and in the end, um, Calvin was like, you know what? Yeah, let's do it because he's he's a heretic, and um, and um, he deserves to die. But he was there trying to change him. Could have he done more? Maybe. I mean, that's why uh, figures like um, like these guys in the Netherlands criticize him so much because he could have done differently, especially in light of John Alasco, who doesn't go there. Um, so, uh, but that was the normal in those times. Church and state work together. It was not a, a stark separation as we have it here. So how do we think about the church? Uh, how, how do we organize ourselves? Is a church that <coughs> exists, excuse me, outside of the state a true church? Um, if it's not uh, sponsored, helped, uh, protected by the state, is it still a true church? Uh, think about the Westminster Confession of Faith, especially the edition that uh, the Scots produced in Scotland. They say in the article on the government, on the uh, magistrates, that the civil government has the right to punish heresies and to protect the church. And the church, by that, by, by that they, they mean the Presbyterian church in Scotland. Is the kingdom who has the right to defend the church against heresies, punish those guys. Well, what happens when the church becomes liberal, right? And now, uh, even though uh, you are outside of the church and you believe the gospel, for the state, you have become an enemy. That's why when we came to America, the Presbyterians changed the confession. Because we don't have a kingdom here. We don't have a national church here. And they changed the confession uh, to adapt to what we have here uh, today. That's a new understanding of the church. It wasn't like that before. Um, so that the church, do you have any questions? Sorry. Told you this is going to be long. Do you have any questions? Does that make sense? We are going back 200 years ago, more or less. And many of, of the things that we think, oh, this is just normal. Uh, that's product of the enlightenment. It's not, it's not how we used to think as Christians. But now, you know, as I said last week, it's impossible that we cannot advance according to the times. And so we adjust our thinking too, and we continue carrying the truths, although uh, the context is different. Same truths, different context, and we speak in a different language, so to speak. So if you were um, you know, a Christian in England or in, uh, in Germany, and, uh, and you walked through the streets, they will never be asking you, what church do you go to? Never. That question didn't even exist because you belong to the national church, right? You go, if you are in, in, in uh, uh, I don't know, Marford or Wittenberg or whatever, you go to the church there, period. Um, and if you were going to a different place, 
you maybe were a sectarian and your life will be in danger. Um, so uh, these are the challenges that, that they uh, were facing. And in light of that, they make this distinction. The church as an institution and the church as an organism. So we're going to see the church as an institution first. That the church needs a form of institutional organization is nothing new. It was sects, sects, cults, and heretics who always tended to deny this in the early church and the Anabaptists in the Reformation era. Uh, if you are familiar with that, um, one of the reasons why Calvin and other reformers hate the Anabaptists so much is not because they baptize adults only. That's, that's not the reason. That's one of the reasons. But uh, there, were, there was more. They didn't believe in, in organizing themselves. They didn't believe in the scriptures. Um, it was more or less like walking in those crazy Pentecostal churches where you go in and uh, someone goes, does anyone have a word of the Lord? And, you know, anyone stands up and goes, yes. Uh, oh, amen. You know, but I didn't understand anything. It doesn't matter. It was a word of the Lord. It's because you are not spiritual enough. Well, that's confusion. That's not true. So they, they got away with uh, scriptures. They didn't see the scriptures as useful anymore. And uh, they didn't see officers in the church as helpful. So no pastors, no elders, no deacons, no nothing. Um, Mennonites are the, the um, heirs of that tradition. Um, that's why I'm surprised to hear that they have pastors, because it was not like that uh, in the Reformation. Anyhow, uh, the biblical data spreads from the Old Testament to the New Testament with continuities and discontinuities proper to each administration of the covenant of grace. That COG, covenant of grace, don't forget. Um, so government is indispensable for the church as a gathering of believers. Just as the temple calls for an architect, a field, a sower, a vineyard, a keeper, a net, a fisherman, a flock, a shepherd, a body, a head, a family, a father, a kingdom, a king. So also the church is unthinkable without an authority that sustains, guides, cares for, and protects it. This authority rests with God, who is not only the creator of all things, but also the savior of the church. As people of God, the church, under the new covenant as well as under the old, is a theocracy. Uh, notice the language there. This is from Babing. Um, the language there is um, what um, Kuiper and Babing started using. It's not normal language. It's very organic. It's very romantic. If you're familiar with romanticism, uh, the philosophy, it's kind of this idea of everything has to be natural, right? Uh, so we have this uh, love for the natural world. And we don't like the uh, uh, buildings and things like that. We should live uh, life to develop in its own way. And that's kind of um, what is influencing them to speak of the church in this way. Um, it's very organic. A body, a head. And well, of course a body needs a head. Can you imagine a body without a head is dead? Uh, uh, the church without Jesus Christ is dead. Kuiper, in fact, says uh, that... You can have the best confession, you can have the best church uh, sanctuary, you, you can have the most prepared officers in the church, and you can have tons of people there. But if you don't have 
Jesus Christ. If you don't have life in him, then that church is dead. Um, why? Because a body needs a head, and the head of the body is Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah 33, uh, 22, right there, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. See, there is this idea of the Lord being the king over his people. So the king of the church is God himself. This authority is exercised, excuse me, by Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, king of his church. There is no other head of the church in heaven and on earth. Um, so in other words, what we are saying is the church needs an organization. The church needs a leader. And who is that leader? Excuse me. It's not Christian, right? It's Jesus. Yeah. And it's not the elders. It's Jesus. As king of his church, it is Jesus himself who gives the church its institutional character. Um, he could indeed do it himself, but he prefers to do it by means of men. This is Calvin. Uh, he's talking about the institutional church. He says, you know what? God could have done it by himself. He could have come and ruled us without the help of anyone. But that's how he works. He, do it, he does it through means of, of men. Where is Calvin getting that idea from? We are going to check those Bible verses. Uh, but also, uh, another image that comes from creation itself. Think about creation. God makes the Garden of Eden, right? And does the Garden of, the, of Eden is as big as the earth is? Uh, we, we kind of have this idea of, oh, when God created us in the garden, we didn't need to do anything. It was just all day lazing around. You know, the pig comes and he, boom, lies flat on the floor. He says, what do you want today, Adam? Oh, ribs. Okay. So, you know, Adam pulls a rib. It's already cooked and it's delicious. So he eats it. The rib grows back in the pig. Nothing happens. That's not how it was. Um, the Bible says that God put man in the garden to what? To tend it and to care for it. So even in the garden, God was using means, a man, in order to extend the garden, to care for it, to, to, to continue it. So there are two things that God is doing. He creates everything that we see, uh, and then he uses man to develop that uh, garden. In that sense, think about it. Every single discovery, every single advancement, everything that we have done that has been discovered by human hands is God's gift. Because that's how he chose us to uh, give us things. And then um, if God doesn't intend us to discover something, he simply will not show it to us. We will not have the capacity to do it uh, or, or anything. Um, so um, he, do, he normally works through men. And then look how Christ moves himself in his ministry. He appoints apostles to continue his work. Um, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. See, it's not that they didn't know, oh, you know, now what? The church has been abandoned. We don't have officers. No, just as Jesus was uh, their shepherd, 
now he has appointed them as shepherds of the church. Um, they will be fishers of men, marked as 117. Jesus himself labels them as the apostles, the sent ones. And when, and when they came, he called his disciples and chose from the 12 whom he named apostles. These are sent out people to bring about the good news of the gospel in official way. Uh, the, the, the word apostle here uh, uh, reaches a new meaning. It's not just sent out. It's sent in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, the reason I'm saying that is because later on we will find in the epistles and in other letters of Paul that, uh, that Paul is talking about sending out people, apostles. And uh, people say, see, there was more apostles. No, no. The, the word there simply means sent. Like, you know, we send a missionary to a different place to proclaim the good news of the gospel. By no means he is the same as the apostle Paul. Uh, Jesus himself gave them this designation in a special way to be the foundation of the church. We're going to see that. Um, Matthew 10, uh, 2. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these, and then he continues naming them. Uh, they were sent to preach, Mark uh, 3.14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. See, again, uh, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach uh, and have authority to cast out demons. Uh, notice that out of the disciples, remember that the gospel tells us that we have many people following Jesus, right? Lots of disciples, but all of the many that he has, he separates 12. Um, so the apostles then are officers instituted by Jesus. Over the apostles' teaching then rests the New Testament church. That's what I'm saying. These are special apostles because Jesus has chosen them to lay the foundation of the church. Over that foundation, we built, continue teaching once and again what the apostles already taught. It's not that, oh, I have received a new revelation. God told me, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, God told me that if we move to this place and we do what I say, very convenient, isn't it? And if, if, if you... Um, follow me, then, <coughs> excuse me, you will, have, you will have your own planet, your own uh, 100, 2,000 wives, and we will be procreating uh, little gods. That's a different foundation. That's a different gospel. Uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is Ephesians 2.20. So the apostles of Jesus Christ, Paul added to them, had this laying of the foundation work in which Jesus Christ is the main stone. Then Revelation 21, 14, And the well of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So um, the New Jerusalem, which is an image of the church, right, has been built over what the apostles have taught. Uh, they are uh, then the main teachers of the church after Jesus Christ. The apostles were the founders of the church, the patriarchs of the people of God in the New Testament, as it were. But this apostolate was not continued. As the office for the founding of the church, it was in, nature of the, in the nature of the case, unsuited for continuation. It is God's word that continued. 
the apostles' witness, uh, John, John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to the ancient, already old um, um, Apostle John. He is perhaps the last one standing. And he goes, you don't have to listen to anything else. All that you have to listen to is what we have already taught you, what we have proclaimed to you. Namely, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of the church. Uh, after that, the Lord Jesus, through the apostles' work, established ordinary offices for the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. And we see the establishment of these offices all over the place in, in the New Testament. Um, and, you know, with, with the scriptures, we need to remember, nothing in the scriptures is made up. It always has a precedent. Uh, think about the book of Hebrews, where, where he's talking about the heavenly natures that, that uh, were represented in the Old Testament. It's more or less like a triangle. God is over here, and he's uh, revealing things to the Old Testament people, which are a reflection of heaven. But then as we come to the New Testament, God himself comes down. So we don't, need, we don't see reflections. We see God himself. And we no longer need the shadows. We need the reality, Jesus Christ. And that's why there are continuities and discontinuities. We no longer have a temple because we are the temple. We no longer have a priest because the sacrifice has been done once and for all, Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, we no longer have... Uh, a holy of holies and an ark of the covenant where the presence of God rests because our hearts have the presence of the Holy Spirit in ourselves. Uh, but there are continuities. Uh, just as Israel had king who was in charge of taking care of the people and priest who was in charge of caring for the needs of the people and teaching the, the truth and prophets who were speaking the word of God to the people. In the same way, we have uh, elders who are in charge of ruling God's people, pastor who is uh, speaking the truth uh, from God's word as a prophet, right? And priests, we have those deacons who are taking care of us in our physical needs. So it's not made up. There is a continuation, a continuity between Old and New Testament. And guess who is the first king, the first prophet, and the first priest in the Bible? It's not Jesus. Well, he is eternally. But there is another one who is. It's Adam. Yeah. Adam is the first one. But that's a good guess too. Uh, Adam is the first prophet because he speaks with God in the garden. And he is commanded to speak that revelation to the posterity. Adam is the king because he is to care of the garden and to represent God's kingship on earth. And Adam is a priest because he is to mediate the relationship between God and humanity here on earth. So all of those things are there. In the New Testament, we have three offices as, as well, pastor, elder, deacon. So the New Testament speaks about overseers of the Ephesian churches, right? Paul, as he's going away, uh, he charges the overseer, overseers excuse me, of the Ephesian church saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Notice there, it's not for you to command. It's not your church, right? It's the church of God he, he, that he has obtained with his own blood. That's a powerful statement right there. So be careful because you are to care for that people. Uh, uh, he also writes letters to uh, the elders and uh, Pastor Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ, the church, who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Uh, he gives directions to Timothy regarding how to choose overseers uh, for the local church. Uh, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, etc., 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 and then makes a distinction between Timothy and others like him and the overseers, especially uh, 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule, who rule well <coughs> be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. So he himself is telling us, what are the elders who rule well? Those who, not those, the distinction in other words is not between the elders who rule bad and the elders who rule well. Uh, in fact, he later on is saying, those who rule well are the ones who labor in teaching and preaching God's truth. They need to be worthy of double honor. So he makes a, makes that distinction already. There are those who rule elders, and there are others who have to be occupied themselves with preaching, teaching, and the administration of the sacraments. Uh, so there seems to be two classes of elders or overseers. Overseers, then, are elders who were designated for a specific ministry in the church. Hence, all overseers were elders, but far from all the elders were overseers. The elders or presbyteries constituted a class or group in the church, while overseers were office bearers. Uh, what he's saying is, we have elders and we have pastor. And although they are the same in rank, pastor does certain things that the elders are not allowed to do because their occupation is to rule the church. Um, and that's very um, tangible even in our relationship here in the church, right? The elders cannot administer the sacraments because you have a pastor whom you have called in order to do that. That's why I was examined, grilled, went to seminary, right, approved by, by presbytery, ordained for that, for that task. That's how it works. Uh, and the elders doesn't mean the pastor is more. Not at all. The elders are the ones who rule. And, and with the elders, pastor is primus inter pares, uh, the first among equals. We are the same in authority, but we have different rules. It's the same with deacons. I've seen this happening, especially in Presbyterian churches. Deacons are the trustees of the church. Deacons are the last wheel of the wagon. No, deacons are officers too. They represent Jesus Christ as well. And, the, and their office is worthy of honor as well. They are not just, you know, we have pastor here, elders, that's good stuff. Deacons over there, you know, when we need a microphone to be solved, we call the deacons. That's not how it works. Deacons are officers too. They represent Jesus Christ's care for you. And that is important as well. Um, 
The distinction is based on function, not in rank, as I said. The minister has been called to proclaim God's word. Uh, you know that one, right? Um, Romans 10. How they shall? Uh, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how they are to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, Paul there is talking about those who are commissioned specifically to proclaim the good news of salvation. Uh, Calvin speaks highly about this office. How great the necessity of the ministry is, he has declared not only in words, but also by examples. When God willed that the light of his truth should shine more fully upon Cornelius, he sent an angel from heaven to direct him to Peter. When he willed to call Paul to the knowledge of himself and to engraft him in the church, he does not address him with his own voice, but sends him to a man from whom he is to receive both, the doctrine of salvation and the sanctification of baptism. It is not by chance that the angel who is, God in, who is God's interpreted, interpreter excuse me, abstains from declaring God's will, but orders a man to be sent forth to declare it. It is not without reason that Christ, the sole teacher of believers, entrusts Paul to the teaching of a man, that very Paul, whom he had determined to catch up into the third heaven and make worthy to receive a wonderful revelation of things unspeakable, who then would there despise uh, despise that ministry or dispense, no, excuse me, who then would dare despise that ministry or dispense with it as something superfluous, whose use God will to attest with such proofs? In other words, what Calvin is saying is he could have done it, speaking or sending an angel, but when we see an angel being sent to speak to Cornelius, he doesn't go immediately, oh, I believe in Jesus. The angel goes, go call for Peter. Isn't that interesting? That Cornelius has to call for a man in order to hear what God has to say. That's pretty cool. Um, also, Calvin uses Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all obtain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. To speak about the ministry of the pastor, right? A deacon's church with the care of the poor, that's Calvin's quote. With the role of deacon, we must think of the ministry of mercy. Uh, there are tons of examples right there. Um, let me just read um, First um, Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, pastor, whoever serves as one who serves by a strength that God supplies in order that everything, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That part, whoever serves, is the word deacon in the Greek. Uh, uh, whoever uh, um, serves as a deacon, as one who, uh, um, I don't even know how to say this, um, whoever deacons by the strength that God supplies. So um, we are to, the, the deacons are important as well. They are, as I said, the, the arms and hands of mercy of God for his people. Um, let me see, Romans 12, 7. If, if this is your gift, says Paul, 
if deaconing in our deaconing. If you are a deacon in service, in our service, the one who teaches in teaching, right? They too are office bearers in the church of Jesus Christ. It is not a third class office nor a minor office. Therefore, the requirements for it are also laid down in the scriptures. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified and not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. <coughs> can you imagine? Can you, sorry, can you imagine? Uh, there was a return and I was like, uh, can you imagine um, Paul going, these are the requirements for overseers. Really important stuff. Timothy, you need to do it. Hard work, good job, find good men. And, and Timothy goes, what about deacons? Oh, we don't care about those guys. <laughs> you know, yeah, I guess it's okay. Uh, so don't worry, just choose whatever. Nope. You heard how Paul speaks about deacons. They gain a lot, Paul says. They are important. Uh, they are officers in the church of Christ as well. Not to be despised. Not to be like, oh yeah, uh, you know, called a deacon. No. That's one of the big errors I've seen in Presbyterian churches, to think that the deacons are trustees, nothing else. And, and we don't care about them. No, that's, that's, not, that's not good theology. That's not biblical. Deacons are part of uh, the church as well, officers of the church. Uh, that's why it's, it's super sad that we haven't, in that sense, followed the example of Calvin. Calvin had the consistory of pastors, and then with the deacons, he had the council of the church. Pastor, elders, deacons. And those three decided things regarding uh, other things that were compelling and necessary for the deacons to decide. But they gathered. Presbyterian churches, we only have the session, and the deacons uh, gather by themselves. Um, and that's a hard tradition to break. Um, it's really, really hard. I've seen, I've seen uh, Presbyterian churches not giving the deacons the importance that they need. They are important. They are officers too. So, why am I going all over the place with this? Because the scriptures are talking about a visible, tangible organization of the church. It's an institution. What we see here, pastor, elder, deacons, people, local church, right? That is an institution. It's the external manifestation of the church. Scriptures speak about the church having an organization. The local church has to be composed of office bearers whose task is to administer Jesus' care for them. They are under shepherds. In addition, this institutional organization of the church has to take into account other local churches uh, of like-minded confession. Already in the New Testament, there is unity in the churches, yet this unity is broken due to distance or members of people. Think about the church in Jerusalem is one with the church in Antioch. They hold the same confession, but 
they cannot gather together to worship every single Sunday. And certainly not in one building, not even in Jerusalem. So what do they do? They spread around in the small churches as they see uh, this, as they see fit, but they are one church. So there is not one Jerusalem church, but several local churches that together form the Jerusalem church. Antioch, Ephesus, Corinthians, and so on. Heresies, schisms, errors, and others have therefore made necessary the use of creeds and confessions. Uh, distortions in worship have given us liturgies and forms, and ecclesiastical procedures have to be done in, in good order. So we have a BCO, although not at the same level of scriptures. All of these are certainly helpful. So why do we have creeds and confessions? Because there are heresies. And when we have it written down, we can go and hear. This is what we believe, compare it to scriptures. Uh, and why do we have a BCO? Uh, because there are procedures that are going to happen in the church. When do we meet? How do we meet? How does worship look like? Um, uh, what happens when uh, an elder uh, one needs to be disciplined or wants to step out or wants to retire? Uh, when a pastor wants to do the same? All of those things are things that the Bible is not overly concerned about and that we need to agree upon so we can go, oh yeah, when, when a pastor wants to retire, these are the steps in good order. So we have a record of it, so we know, and so on. That's the BCO. Uh, can we get away, uh, I mean, can we remove the BCO? Yeah, but then it's going to be a mess. What are we going to follow, right? <coughs> Can we change it? Yes, <clears throat> it can be changed. It's, it's not as easily done, but it can be done. Uh, we need to, as you know, we need to go to General Assembly. We need to vote. All the pastors have to vote. And then uh, we need to go back. And the presbyteries have to affirm that. And two-thirds of the presbytery have to affirm the change and then goes to the General Assembly again. And then if it passes that vote, then we can change the VCO. It's it's complex, but it's easy. What do we need to do in order to change the confession? Well, at least we need to meet with the OPC because they hold to the same version of the confession and then come to conversations about what is it that we are going to change, right? Uh, and, and so on. That's harder to do. What do we need to do in order to change the creeds? We can't. Because in order to do that, we need to, go, we need to meet with Rome, with uh, the Eastern churches, and with every single other church that um, confesses that, and then come to an agreement of what we want to change. And that's, that's way much harder to do, um, because we don't, we don't even have the brains that we had before. Anyhow, um, let's, is there any question? Everyone wants to go. I know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the church as an institution and um, the tip of the iceberg that we have been able to see this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the organization that you have given to your church, that you are our king, but in your care and your love and your mercy, you have given us under shepherds as well. Uh, we pray that you may be with them, that uh, they us may be able to display your care and your love uh, for your people. And we pray for your people, Lord, as we gather to worship. Bless us, Lord. Uh, grant us of your presence so we may be blessed by you as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters.